I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. A lot of people are suffering from climate and environment-related fears and anxieties. A new book from Britt Ray confronts Echo Anxiety, providing scientific knowledge and emotional insight, showing that it can be a healthy response to the state of the world. Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis, is an engaging book that looks at uh, ways to mourn, as well as addressing critical issues like inequality in the world. That's key because the ill effects of uh, the climate crisis aren't felt equally. It's usually the poorest and more marginalized that suffer the most. And the book gets personal when Britt talks about discussions she had in her family with her partner about whether to have children. We see how the world's future can impact what's happening at home. Britt Ray is a writer and broadcaster. She is a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University and uh, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She holds a Ph.D. in science communication from the University of Copenhagen. Her work has been featured in sundry publications like the New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian, and Globe and Mail. Her newsletter, Gen Dread, can be found at gendread.substack.com. This new book is published by Knopf. She joined me from Toronto last week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Britt Ray. Dr. Ray, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks good for, to be here. Thanks for joining us. So th- this book is not a, um, a manual on what to do or how to take action, is it? No, it's, it's really not. If we think of action as being only external in terms of getting our policies in order to address the climate crisis or working on technologies to draw down carbon out of the atmosphere, the kinds of things that we, we talk about and that are urgently needed, it's yeah. really focused on the internal work or the internal action that we can take around difficult emotional responses to the climate crisis and how we can harness what we might feel if it's eco-anxiety or climate grief, for example, or, or anger about what's happening and use it as tools to take, you know, collective action with others um, and adaptively cope rather than fall into a, a kind of a mobilizing or paralyzing sense of hopelessness or powerlessness in the crisis, which a lot of people are reporting feeling. Yeah. Yeah, but a lot of people will probably, um, uh, for the most part, either be hopeful or, or, or wallow in despair. And it's probably on another side that they you know they probably a lot of people probably fall on the on the despair side um but it's okay to feel that isn't it i mean it it does take a toll though at the same time doesn't it yeah it's okay to have really difficult challenging emotions it's it's okay to feel hopeless and despairing at times the trick is to not get stuck in any one dire place, mm. but to keep moving through the different emotions that the climate crisis might present you with. Um, you know, we understand that this is growing in society. Researchers are, are showing us this and surveys and studies. My colleagues and I actually studied um, climate anxiety in 10,000 young people aged 16 to 25 in 10 countries around the world, and we were looking at places like Philippines, Nigeria, and India, as well as Finland, France, and the U.S., yeah. and other countries um, spanning, you know, low and middle and high income places. And we found um, some pretty alarming things, actually, even for those of us who think about this day in, day out. 
Uh, 45% of those 10,000 young people said that their feelings about climate change are negatively affecting their ability to function on a daily basis. So mm. do things like go to work, go to school, concentrate, you know, sleep, have fun and play. And so, of course, there are huge um, negative mental health impacts if the feelings become so severe that it is impairing one's ability to function. Um, you know, 75% of these young people said that they feel the future is frightening. Yeah. 56% of them talked about um, the feeling that humanity is doomed. And this is, of course, uh, really sad to know that so many young people are feeling this way with the existential pressures that the climate crisis creates. But it's also very understandable. I don't think they're overreacting for having these feelings. Just because you feel humanity is doomed doesn't mean that you are... Um, actually speaking the truth that humanity is doomed. Right. Um, it's, it's a feeling, and it's not a fact, but um, it's very understandable that young people are, you know, made aware of this crisis, and as well as their inherited duty to clean it up, often before they can go out and explore important aspects of their identity and, you know, enjoy aspects of, of just being a young person. And this is a, a new generational reality that we need to address through intergenerational solidarity. But... You know, it's not only young people that can feel this way. Anyone of, of any age can, yeah. can feel the despair that you're noting if they have, you know, an environmental identity, if they connect with the natural world beyond just the narrow human sphere and and kind of face up to the severity of the climate predicament. And this is a sign of health, ultimately. It mm, means that you care. Right. It means that you're connected to reality and you're not denying yourself away from it. Um, and you can connect with other people over these feelings and... The trick is, um, of course, to not have them overpower you, that you become immobilized and fixated only on the apocalyptic, um, but can also make yourself large enough and, and flexible enough in your thinking and feeling around the crisis to also bring in the joy and bring in the hope and bring in um, the, the nurturing and nourishing things that will help us create the better future than we otherwise imagined. So it really is a delicate balancing act of like holding tension between very extremely different emotions that are positive and negative. Yeah, and then under, uh, realizing, too, that sometimes it can be overwhelming and, and to, to mourn, yeah. you know, the importance of that as well, which is which I found a very powerful part of the, of the book. Um, so something that I've been thinking about as, as I finished the book that, that, um, that, that, that I've been thinking about after, uh, long after, is this idea that, that echo anxiety is, is um, in terms of how pervasive it is, um, it, it also uh, reveals the, the amnesia that, that a lot of us have in terms mm. of, of um, what's happening around us. And then the other thing that, that, that I keep thinking about is that um, it's, it's something that, that, that uh, depending on how privileged you are in the world, um, the, the the climate crisis is, is obviously keenly felt by the poor, the marginalized. Um, the, the effects are, are, are fastest, say, to, to to them rather than than those of us who are more privileged. Um, mm -hmm. How do we deal with all of this? And in, in terms of of um, but for, first of the part about the, the amnesia that echo anxiety reveals about us. I mean, it really does depend on where you are in the world. And sort of the experience we've had in terms of how we all feel this, isn't it? Yes. What we're experiencing now is a kind of massive wake up of many people who have been previously living 
pretty comfortable lives, mm. taking their safety and security for granted, um, you know, not even consciously necessarily expecting that the future will just be filled with a stable climate. And, you know, it's something that they, they didn't have to question, essentially, uh, whether or not there are going to be these life-threatening forces disrupting their own lives and livelihoods and that of the people they're closest to. But the climate crisis is making those privileged people among us notice something new, that, you know, the, the world actually isn't feeling safe. Mm -hmm. um, and for many, this is the very first time in which they're experiencing the emotions of existential threat. However, um, of course, the climate crisis is not the first existential threat. And for many who are also uh, alive today, living under the threat of the thumb of various forms of oppression, whether it's systemic racism or ongoing intergenerational trauma of colonization or living under an authoritarian regime or the threat of sexual violence, I mean, you name it, mm -hmm. there's so many existential threats that people have built up existential resilience in the face of finding ways to um, provide the endurance to continue and to be joyful in the face of that which is challenging and oppressive. But the privileged anxiety, like my own, um, from having previously not contended with these existential threats, it, it, it needs to be connected to these other kinds of emotions of, of survival and, and rage or anger at the injustice of what's happening that many people hold a lot of wisdom around from lived experience. And, you know, early in my research, um, an eco-anxiety scholar named Pano Picola told me that, you know, eco-anxiety can be incredibly tough to bear for middle-class citizens of industrialized na nations because it reveals to them that the world is a much more tragic and fragile place than they thought it was. Mm. You know, and, and by, by that he means that it, it starts to profoundly affect them on a feeling level, not just on an intellectual level, because, of course, you can intellectually know about the suffering in the world, um, but not really embody it, and yeah, the climate yeah. crisis is, is changing that and making it embodied. So that's why if we just talk about eco-anxiety without the justice aspects or without connecting it to other forms of existential threat, it can have that cultural amnesia of not looking at it in context and understanding how this is just like a wider a wider gap that is inviting more people into feeling it than perhaps some of these other existential threats have before. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, the idea. I if you had another part of that question. Yeah, the the idea of addressing this inequality in our in, in our, our world today. I mean, that, that seems critical. That seems urgent. Um, how does that get addressed quickly? Yeah. Well, these issues are deeply interconnected, and we will be much more effective in finding solutions to protect the most vulnerable. And, you know, when you do protect the most vulnerable, that means that you're coming up with solutions that will work for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's an important part of, of looking at these justice issues intersectionally and understanding that, you know, if poor communities of color are being adequately cared for, nurtured, protected, um, that that will also work um, everywhere in society for everyone um, because, of the ways in which hierarchies of oppression have have had their impact over time, and we need to undo these these violent systems and and work for partnership rather than domination, and and you know systems that will work for for all of us together. So it's it's really in all of our best interest to focus on the most vulnerable and what can be done to support such communities. 
Um, but that means looking at much more than just the climate crisis. It means looking at racism. Mm. It means looking at um, the legacies of colonization, these other kinds of issues that we've already mentioned. And it can feel overwhelming, like, oh, my gosh, yeah, how am yeah. I supposed to solve all these different things at once? Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But, but actually, it, it's perhaps a, a false binary there that it's an either-or, but mm-hmm. we can unlock a lot of change if we take an intersectional approach that really appreciates the inequality and injustice that's at the root of, of harm in the climate crisis and, and try to keep all these things in mind, not only because um, there are parallel impacts, mm-hmm. like, in, you know, if you're addressing racism and, and climate at the same time, you can make a lot more change for more people, but you can also invite others to join you, join your cause and feel seen, right? Like yeah. a climate action campaign that doesn't address environmental racism or kind of police brutality will leave a lot of people not participating, not feeling seen. Um, And that we we cannot afford to not have people be seen at this moment when we need to band together across our differences um, to protect humanity's futurity and do it in a compassionate, thoughtful way that allows for all of these things to be included. So um, I really don't see it as a as an either or, and I, and I hope that, and I, I, I am hopeful. I see that a lot of people out there are understanding that we can do this encompassing approach um, because we need to create communities of care, and communities of care require looking at intersectional injustices. Has the experience of the pandemic the last couple of years, has that, um, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, for some people it, it might leave them more uh, hopeless in terms of, of humanity coming together, um, in other areas, it might give people um, some ideas as to how to, to, to contend with the climate crisis. What, what have you found in the last uh, couple of years of COVID, for example, in terms of um, how are, are we much better at, at realizing so, sort of the, the, the emergencies of, uh, that, are, that surround us and, and dealing with them, perhaps? COVID is a, an interesting beast because... It's revealed some really illuminating aspects of how we treat each other and also created more reasons to be concerned about this ability to create communities of care amidst amidst crisis because, you know, we did have an all-out effort to mobilize the world's attention, you know, the media, our, our scientific proclivities, all these tools and talents that we have towards addressing the threat, and it really was an all-out all hands on deck, world stopping, you know, mm-hmm. kind of this experience where it felt like many years happened in just a few weeks or months because <laughs> right. of how much dramatic change was occurring. Yeah. And and then we had the world's fastest kind of scientific pull through to create life-saving vaccines. And um, all of a sudden, we're able to spend trillions of dollars on solutions that we didn't know was possible from public spending before, you know, if we're talking about the United States, let's say. Mm -hmm. And um, that's pretty incredible because it also then shows what is possible when we feel that we're up against an existential threat that will, you know, change everything about our current living order. And that's the kind of all-out effort that activists demand on the climate crisis as well, given what the science is outlining, and that would really be appropriate in this situation. Um, at the same time, the, the altruism and that um, wonderful 
looking out for one another in the pandemic was not totally thorough. Of course, we've seen more division and polarization Mm -hmm. and horrific amounts of fake news and, and, you know, misinformation that has really cost lives, um, pulling people apart, um, which is a huge challenge in this time of unprecedented polarization and, you know, lack of respect for science and expertise and these sorts of things that we're also grappling with. And that just presents us with more problems when it comes to how we're going to deal with climate. But I think that the pandemic is is very clear in, in now teaching us that mm-hmm. we're up against some very serious threats when it comes to how we interact with the natural world. You know, we get these zoonotic spillovers that turn into pandemics from going into wild places and deforesting or extracting minerals and fossil fuels and bumping them into wide, wild species and having their viruses spill over into us. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's that same dominating of nature kind of mindset that creates the extraction of the climate crisis that, you know, is producing the warming that's endangering us now. Basically, all of, all of this is a planetary health crisis outlining how the way we engage with nature is now rolling back to become the number one threat to human health, both in pandemics and climate disasters. And so we need to take a real hard look in the mirror about this and think deeply about yeah, it's a lot of system reorganization that we're being called to do, and that's overwhelming, and it feels daunting, and it, it's a lot, but sure. but we have to do it because what other choice do we have, right? It, it will be our demise if we don't band together and muster the courage by knowing that, you know, we can't reconcile this as individuals, but as collectives, we really can, and we need to use all of our talents and efforts for this. The way that we banded together in the pandemic to come up with unheard of rapid and effective vaccines, you know? Um, So I find find more resolve from the pandemic example and evidence of what we can do when we become really committed and determined. Um, But we have to cross that gap and apply it to a slower unfolding crisis that we've been dealing with um, for decades already. You write, Britt, in the book about the experience that um, the personal experience that you and your husband had uh, a few years ago uh, as you began talking about starting a family. I I found that incredibly um, uh, a very thoughtful and moving part of the book. Um, For people listening who haven't read the book yet, in in terms of the discussions that you both had and that a lot of people are having who, who want to have children, who want to start families, what are some of the discussions? What are some of the arguments in terms of, of uh, for or against having children at this time? Um, those were those were ones that you had in, in your own household, right? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And, and yes, um, we talked at length for some years about the decision before we made a decision, mm-hmm. um, and it was particularly hard for me feeling such deep and rife ambivalence around bringing a kid into this climate crisis, um, given historical inaction towards addressing it. And, yeah. and you know, from my personal conversations with my partner and also from talking with researchers who are looking at this phenomenon of reproductive refusal or reproductive anxiety in the climate crisis, it really shakes down according to lots of different ways of, of feeling and justifying one's decisions. So people who are deciding against having kids often will say, Things like, well, you know, 
if I don't use all those resources, all that time spent on child rearing, I can more effectively address the environmental crisis. I can, you know, I can go to prison for direct action, civil disobedience if I'm that kind of activist, mm-hmm. or I can use my money towards um, some kind of innovation to help the climate crisis or whatever it might be. Basically, yeah. just having the energy that otherwise children suck from you <laughs> is what many people say. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's just this moral calculation. People feel it's selfish to have kids at this time um, when you can't guarantee that they're going to be protected given, given how bad the climate crisis is becoming um, and that it's just some kind of indulgent act of the parents to, to have them anyway and make them then witness environmental decline over their entire life. But people who do decide to have a kid be, while being very climate aware say things like not having a kid just feels like giving up, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a folding of the cards. It's a way of actually committing to doomism, this idea that it's too late to make a difference. Yeah. Um, when having a child becomes the stake in the ground that forces you to keep your eyes open to the crisis every day and do everything you can to be part of the solution and create resilient communities for that child to thrive in. And so it's a huge motivation. Like the child becomes this huge tool for the ongoing work of making the future a better place. Some also think that there's kind of an environmental politics to having a child where you're going to raise them with certain kinds of green values and ethics within your household that they will then grow into that resilient next generation that will work more effectively than ever for the solutions that are needed. Um, You know, and then there's the more personal stuff. I mean, having a child has always been uh, an issue that's much more than just a rational calculation of morality or ethics. It's also people have kids. It's very irrational. It's very emotional as to why we have kids um, to fulfill different questions of meaning and purpose in one's life or, the registers of love that one's curious about feeling wow. um, for a child that you create as compared with other forms of access of love you can uh, you can get in one's life and um, you know it doesn't it doesn't fit in a neat categorical box that lo- box that logical reasoning can really get you to I know like some of the conversations in the book that I share with my partner is my partner believing that yeah sure it, it is really selfish to have kids especially at this time it, it, it's always been selfish to have kids even though we usually um, historically had been used to hearing child-free people being labeled as selfish for choosing to enjoy life without kids mm-hmm. um, but you know there's there's something about knowing that you exist for another person um, that is is deeply grounding in turbulent times and it's a human right to have a family and that can be the the deep kind of rope that you hold on to in difficult times to keep you going. So, you know, there's no right or wrong in all of this. There's many different ways to cut it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's completely understandable that so many people are turning away from having kids because of the climate crisis. But, you know, of course, me and my own decisions, I decided to have a child, which um, only happened really as a result of grappling with these feelings and thoughts thanks to writing the book. And um, I just think we need to talk about this more. It's there. It's a fervent conversation, and it's it's now coming in to be something that was below the surface just a few years ago to something many people understand in just a few quick, short years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but it's just one of many 
emotional repercussions of what's going on. Yeah, that's what makes the book so engaging and accessible is that, that um, uh, whatever personal experiences you might have or other people might have in terms of, of the other people that you write about in the book, um, you can read yourself into it and realize, yeah, it is, these things are personal decisions, um, but uh, whatever we do personally has a, uh, an effect uh, to the wider world. And we need to be conscious of all of that, that we're all part of something, aren't we? And um Yes. That's why I found the book so so not a, a, a useful read, um, but an important one. Um, I could talk all day with, with you about it, Britt, but I'll, I'll let you go. Um, as I said, it's such an important book. Congratulations on it, and continued good luck with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it's really kind of you. And um, yeah, I appreciate being on your show. The book is called Generation Dread: Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. It's authored. Britt Ray, join me on the line from Toronto. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Planta.